Good morning, Lansing. It's Saturday, and the time is 11.06. The pet experts are in the building, and it's time for the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on more compelling talk radio, 1320 WILS. Now, your hosts, Lee Cohen and Rick Preuss. Welcome, pet keepers, to this week's MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. I'm your host, Lee Cohen, here with my co-host, the pet expert himself, Mr. Rick Preuss. Good morning, Rick. Hey, uh... Good morning, Lee Cohen. You're not shabby yourself. Uh, after that. after like maybe what twelve years, you've got to be you got to be pretty proficient. Well, if if we're gonna throw titles around like pet experts, I guess we'll put we'll put one on your lapel as well. Okay, well, I appreciate it. I've grown from completely senseless to mildly <laughs> uh, sensible. But yeah. Rick, I want I want to talk about our show today. But before I do, I don't want to offend you because. I happened to see on Facebook a picture of you and your family at an MSU basketball game, having a great time. Even your granddaughter seemed to be having a wonderful time. But I have to tell you, we're going to talk with a professor today who is teaching at Purdue University. And for those of you who don't know, Purdue is the number one college basketball team in the country and has beaten Michigan State every time they've played them. So I'm sorry out there for all of the Michigan State people, but this lady is amazing. Yeah, yeah, she is absolutely amazing. And my intention of showing up to the game, I'm a supporter of Michigan State basketball, and it was a women's basketball game. And and we did lose, uh, but that wasn't what was important. It was really about just having the family together and and just having support there and enjoying it. And now, you know, Purdue's fans get to have an opportunity to, you know, get get excited and all the things that we as Michigan State fans and in men's basketball have, yeah, we've have had really twenty five yeah, years straight. Yeah, so. So, you know, my hat's off to them, and may they just really find lots of enjoyment and excitement and uh, the fever that we always feel, you know, we all appreciate that kind of thing. But more importantly, this guest I've been excited about all week long. I've been hoping to, you know, just I wanted to come in with my most clear head because this person, I think, can do more to help people understand a topic that is really near and dear to me. Um than anyone else in the entire country. Um, the idea of someone having a puppy in their living room is a sacred idea. I mean, I think we I all... I got one. I, I think <laughs> I, until recently I've had one. I've had one all my life, and it's always been such a cherished relationship. I think that is an opportunity for everybody. You know, everybody should have the opportunity if that's what they want, and yet... We find ourselves in a very interesting quagmire where we don't necessarily set up a marketplace, if you will, that really caters to that, to really caters to animal welfare. And I think she'll better explain it to me, so I'm not going to get into it in this intro. But when she comes on, keep your ears open and your mind open to the topic that she brings to the table. I think we all want nothing but a, a, a safe, animal welfare-driven marketplace. But realistically, you know, going to the a rescue isn't always the thing 
that is appropriate for every person. Somebody's just new into the dog keeping. They might need a dog that's more cooperative, might be younger, might be a puppy, uh, might be a particular breed to perform a particular task, you know, and that's only going to happen if we look at the marketplace as a whole and how do we get the population, what is the population in the United States? 300 million? 330 million. 330 million. How do you get uh, that those who want dogs in a country of 330 million people happy and and find the dog of their dreams? Now, that's a great question. And our guest today is Dr. Candace Crony, who is the Associate Vice Provost of Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging. She's the Director of the Center for Animal Welfare Science and a Professor of Animal Behavior and Well-Being at Purdue University. And she is someone who is intriguing because of her work that she's done looking at commercial uh, puppy raisers and really trying to assess what are the parameters that they should use and that they should have to uphold. And it's a fascinating story that I'm sure she's going to get into. So that's the conversation we'll have this week on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. It's the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. We're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And Rick, we have with us on the line a returning guest. I consider her to be a very special guest, a very, very intelligent uh, professor from the University of Purdue Veterinary Medical School. It's Dr. Candace Crony. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Crony. Thank you, Lee. It's so good to be back with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Uh, the last we spoke with you, I remember you had gotten some grant money and were working on the defining of what is the difference between a dog breeder versus a puppy mill. And you were also working on a number of other things. And to look at your program right now, I saw that you've added a new title. You are the Associate Vice Provost of Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been a busy year, yes. I'll bet. I'll bet. Uh, talk to us about your new position. Well, you know, it's a, it's a very big honor to be asked to step into a role like this one. Our, our office serves to really look at the experience the level of success, the sense of belonging that everybody on campus feels um, with an eye towards really making that an optimal experience for people, right? And so it's wonderful to be able to work with faculty and staff, which is really what my area covers, as well as postdoctoral students and graduate students. Um, and our office covers far more than that in course, including undergraduate students, um, but to really look at what people need in terms of support to have the best possible experience they can have at Purdue while being incredibly productive and successful. So we work on all sorts of programs in collaboration with others to make sure that we do our level best to get everybody to a place where we are thoughtful about what inclusive excellence means to Purdue and how we live up to that those values for everyone. 
Well, I was going to say, it It seems like from my observation, and I admit it's just my observation in dealing with a number of veterinarians as well as the vet school here at Michigan State, it seems like when it comes to being inclusive uh, for females, boy, has it become inclusive because there's an awful lot of females who have gone into the field of veterinary medicine or other related fields. But it doesn't seem like when it comes to people of color that that has necessarily happened yet. And I imagine that's a focus for you to focus on and trying to get a little bit more parity in that. Well, yeah, that's an, that's an excellent point. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Feels like veterinary medicine has become have really shifted to be um, primarily dominated by women. That said, you know, when you look at leadership positions and so on, even though there might be um, a predominance of women in the field when you look at who's in leadership roles, that's not necessarily trickling up as you would think so that that representation is there um, as much as, as one might expect. Um, but, yeah, to your point, um, in terms of people who are diverse in, in different elements, and in, including um, racial and, and ethnic um, identity and so on, yeah, we we are not terribly diverse um, in in that regard. In fact, um, one of the areas that uh, has been heavily discussed in veterinary medicine is how to diversify the discipline. And in the area that I work in, specifically in animal welfare science, um, those conversations are starting to happen as well. And it's great. But the you know the, the trick is nobody wants to introduce diversity and bring with it divisiveness or do the dance of bringing people in who are different and there's no real thought process about what that difference means, why you're looking for it, um, what you expect people to do. And then there's always this tension between, you know, diversity and excellence and so on. So what we try to do, at least in the work that I'm involved with, is really put the emphasis on inclusive excellence, right? Getting people in the field who are phenomenal at what they do, they just, for whatever reason, haven't had the opportunity to show up in those spaces and contribute the unique insights and, frankly, just the fabulous thought process that solves the problems bigger and better and faster, right? Which, especially when you're talking about things like dogs and their welfare science, we need all the best minds working on a problem um, that's that significant. And so, yeah, there's there's a need, and I'm excited that we're starting to have these conversations about not how to displace anybody who's already represented or how to sort of minimize the contributions of those who are already here or how to be divisive, but really, how do we get even more of the best? and the greatest minds working on the tough problems and really make a space where they want to be in that space, they feel like they belong in that space, they're doing the best possible work. I, I find that, uh, um, I guess, uh, very enriching, very uh, empowering uh, to hear this. And one thing I think about, because we've had plenty of conversation in the past in regards to your efforts that you've had in this idea of uh, 
puppy mills versus commercial breeding and trying to understand and explore the ethics of that. And more importantly, trying to develop some form of community that looks at it from a perspective of balance and science. Um, and that's taken quite a challenge, and you've probably moved the meter towards the direction of finding answers better than most in the industry. I mean, you're respected throughout the industry as somebody that's you know looking at this problem from a keen perspective. And I would imagine that by doing that, by meeting with uh, the Amish individuals that uh, do commercial breeding in the, you know, I think it's the uh, certain, like, what area of your state that it is that you were, you were meeting with them and other commercial breeders that uh, have ideas and intentions from history and trying to bring them by all together and give credit to all of them and acknowledging who they are, what they're all about, and that their problems that they may be having aren't, specific to them, but just maybe some past ways of doing things. And then opening that mind up to everybody around. Um, I would imagine that your university looked at that and your efforts that you put forth in doing that before they thought about how well suited you'd be for this very position that they've put you in. Would that make any sense to you? Well, first of all, that's very kind of you to say. And um, yeah, absolutely. These same kinds of approaches translate completely to the work that, that I do in the, the provost's office in this regard, um, under the direction of great leadership and, and with a phenomenal team there as well. Um, it, it, it really is odd how well it's translated, because you're absolutely right. It is this idea that there is excellence and potential everywhere. And if you are literally a little bit more attuned to where leadership, for instance, in animal welfare could be, and if you are open to recognizing it, the potential you have to unlock so much good in so many ways that are important to us um, is just mind-blowing, right? Like, yeah. For me, I get a lot of credit for the work that we have done um, with canine welfare. But honestly, none of that would have been possible if I had not had a little bit of an epiphany um, and a very humbling moment where I realized how much I did not know as a result of engaging with the Amish directly and, and sitting back and taking the time to really listen to them, and not focus so much on the, the science we were trying to get done, but to think about, from the people's perspective, what was important to them? Why were they doing what they were doing? What is it about their culture, their access to education and other resources needed to sort of meet the expectations the rest of us might have on animal welfare? Once we started forging those connections, and they would ask me just as many questions as I would ask them, um, although they were really, really shy and, and hesitant to do that at first, that dynamic, of course, is flipped on its head now. I mean, people are very comfortable, and they make fun of me all the time, which is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we now have this sort of relationship, right, where, you know, as a result of taking that approach, they they're not problems to be solved. They 
literally are people who were trying to do their best work, and they didn't have anybody who had the expertise in the area of need they had working with them, who was going to take the time to get to know them as well, not just not demonize them, but really get to know them as people, get to know what motivates them, get to, you know, understand what what constraints they have by virtue of the culture that they're in, and then just work with that. And the beauty is, the folks we've worked with have taught me just as much as I think I've taught them. And the most beautiful part is now they've all become sort of advocates and allies in, you know, the work to improve canine welfare. And they've become fantastic ambassadors for animal welfare, which, I mean, it's a really nice example of how you can just be more inclusive, just be sort of open to who's out there, um, put aside biases and assumptions and so on. And, and you know, it worked out in a really lovely way here. And I, I hope we, we get to do that in other areas of work that are really important to us moving forward. But, yeah, certainly that, that experience translated to almost everything that I do in the new world. Well, it seems to me that that would be an important thing to focus on, which is, you you said the key words, which is to look at things from not the perspective of science, but the perspective of people. Because to me, the thing I think about is that here in Lansing, there are a lot of neighborhoods where you don't have very many veterinarian offices and they tend to be a little bit more urban in their nature. But then you look in other areas, and my goodness, there's one like right down the street from each other, and there's a lot of them. And it just seems like the benefit of having more people of color involved in this is that they would locate, hopefully, in some other areas, and other people could benefit from having proximity of that service to them. Because I think more and more people, especially during the pandemic, discovered the joy, the pleasure, and life that animals can bring as pets. And the problem is they need to be able to care for them properly, and they need to have people who are close, that they trust, that can do that work. And hopefully you're able to get them in. You are 100% right. And for that reason, access to veterinary care has become a major focal point for the veterinary um, profession. There's lots of conversation um, about what access to veterinary veterinary care looks like. In fact, I even have a graduate student working on some of those issues for the exact reasons you talked about. When you have that access, when you have people who, for instance, are in communities where they really have a strong connection to their communities and the community members also feel that strong connection, um, the likelihood is you're going to get more animals that are cared for. Um, see more regularly and ultimately have better welfare outcomes for them, but also for the people who depend on them, right? And so if we talk about the human-animal bond, keeping in mind my, my colleague, Dr. Beck, the current director of our Center for the Human-Animal Bond, when we think about the importance of the human-animal bond and we think about the role of veterinarians in ensuring that those bonds are strong, Part of that depends on animals being physically healthy, genetically healthy, but also behaviorally healthy, right? Because we know pet owners tend to not tolerate behavior problems in their pets very well. It's one of the major reasons, if not the top reason, pets are relinquished 
um, abandoned or euthanized. Um, and that's, those are serious issues, right? And so, again, the more people we have who are well-matched to the communities that need their support, who really can inspire also other young minds who are interested in careers like veterinary medicine or animal welfare science and so on, but who can really get in there and do the work um, within the communities as part of the communities, the better, right, for the animals and for the people. Absolutely. We're speaking this morning with Dr. Candice Crony, who is the Associate Vice Provost Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging and is a director of the Center for Animal Welfare Science and professor of animal behavior and well-being at Purdue University. And Dr. Crony, we need to take our first break, but when we come back, we'll continue with the conversation. And I do want to get in a little bit to what's been going on in your work with dealing with breeders and how things have transpired over the last couple of years. And we'll do that right here on 1320 WILS. It's the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. It's 9.35 and we're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And we've been talking this morning with Dr. Candace Crony, who is the Associate Vice President, Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging. She is the Director of Center for Animal Welfare Science and a Professor of Animal Behavior and Well-Being at Purdue University. And Rick, you had a question to start us out this segment. Well, Dr. Crony, I was just thinking that it would be worth bringing up the topic associated with the words commercial breeding and the words puppy mill. And I think that uh, nobody could probably speak better on this than you because, as I see it, you have nothing but the best intentions in mind for puppies and people when it comes to looking at the overall picture of where we are in the dog kennels slash dog breeding, dog is your best friend marketplace, if you will, because that's basically what it is. We don't happen to just all go to the town square and pick up a dog, right? There has to be a market behind it. And I was hoping you could comment a bit on, you know, I guess there's, there's kind of a a paradox, if you will, or a difficult situation where you bring up in conversation the idea of a commercial breeder, and to some people it clamps them right up and keeps them from having further conversation, and other people feel quite confident about just bringing out the words puppy mill as if it's actually a commercial breeder, but you you might have a better view of this from 4,000 4, 4, feet up uh, Give us a perspective for somebody that's just came off another planet and wanted to sit down and understand where we're at in the idea of getting people puppies. Uh, what's the marketplace like and what's what 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 works and what doesn't or what should work and what shouldn't work? Okay. So let me do my best with that um, because you've, you've packed a lot of really important um, concepts into that question. So the first thing I will tell you is, I don't think the average person has any idea what a commercial dog breeder is. But everybody knows the term puppy mill because we've we've seen all sorts of campaigns about that, right? I mean, um, we've seen ads on TV. We've seen them online. Um, we, You know, we've seen the news stories that pop up over and over. And my goodness, we should be sick of seeing 
stories about puppy mills. We really need to do better for dogs. And we also really need to understand that we cannot do anything helpful to support the welfare of animals until we get a look and a deep understanding of the people who keep animals, right? And so for me, my work is about supporting people and helping them to understand what animals need, why they need them, and how they can actually help to meet those needs in a way that really serves themselves better and ultimately results in better welfare outcomes for the, for the animals themselves um, and that are far more in tune with what the average person thinks is the right way to, to treat it up, right? The problem when you think about that in the context of commercial breeders is that the only time I think the average person hears that term is when it's tied to puppy nails. And so if you just put those words in a sentence together, um, for many people, they, they become one and the same, right? And so that, that's a problem right off the bat. And so many campaigns and so on sort of tie large-scale sort of or bigger-scale um, kennels to being puppy nails without bothering to stop and think about the fact that you actually can do a lot of good if it is done intentionally and thoughtfully and with all the right resources, you can actually have a big kennel and be doing really well by your dog, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there absolutely are ways to do that. And nobody ever gets to hear that story. So if you hear puppy mill and commercial breeding, and immediately what you go to is lots of animals, which means they're all being treated poorly, then, yeah, that, that conversation ends for you right there. Who, who wants to support that? Mm-hmm. The difference that most people don't get to hear about is that for us, at least in the work that we do at Purdue, a puppy mill is different from a commercial breeder because by definition, puppy mills are operations that are running with absolutely no care, no impetus to do anything to support the needs of the dogs themselves. It really is just profit-driven, right? And to be perfectly honest, you reach out to some of those folks to offer help, and they have no interest in learning more or doing anything to improve. So it's a, it's a fundamental difference in attitude compared to a commercial breeder who, different from a puppy mill, if they're operating in good standing with the law, um, has to be regulated to some degree, um, either federally, by the state, sometimes locally, sometimes all of the above, right? Puppy mills... I think of as illegal operations because the things that they do in terms of how they care for and manage their dogs would not meet anybody's legal standards anywhere, right? So for me, that's an important differentiation. It's not the scale of the kennel. It is how well cared for the animals within the kennel are. And that, I think, is where we don't have enough conversation with the public. If we are going to decide that off the top of our heads, you cannot do a good job for animals, and in this case for dogs, if there are a lot of them, then you really can't have a conversation because what you said is you're not interested in staff. And we have, for instance, through the program that we do, Canine Care Certified, we have breeders who have quite a lot of dogs, and they have cleverly figured out that in order to do well by their dogs, now that they understand what well looks like, they've got to get a lot more help. They've got to bring in a lot more people who can really look at what they're doing and give them good insight, whether those are members of their own community um, who are really operating to a very high standard or external experts like myself and others um, like me and my research team. 
and they get that job done. And when people go to their kennels, they are floored. The problem is so many people have such a bias um, that these are commercial kennels. They won't even take the opportunity they're being offered to go see for themselves that it's not a lie, not PR. And that's a shame because what that speaks to is a level of bias and being sort of entrenched so much in the narrative and the stories that we already know that we fail to stop and think about, could there be something new out there that we don't know about that we need to learn about because it might actually contain solutions to the real problem. So coming back to the original point, people often conflate puppy mills and commercial breeders. What they may not know is whether they agree with the, you know, the strength of the legislative standards that a commercial breeder has to comply with to be in good standing or good legal standing just to operate, that distinction is critically important. Even more important, there are commercial breeders who are going to vary in terms of the quality of the work they do, just like you would see in any industry. With the breeders that we work with, they go a step further. They do our voluntary standards program. That's really, really hard. It's far beyond anything that any laws require. They're doing exactly the things that people have been asking for forever. The, the dogs are getting lots of space. They get regular, continuous daylight access to the outdoors. They're socially housed. People are doing enrichment. They get exercise. You'll see these dogs out in play yards for many people's kennels running around. They look like boarding kennels. And the dogs are not fighting like people would think. They're well-maintained. They're well-monitored. This can happen. We know it can happen because it is happening. We're watching it, and the science is documenting it and the effects on dogs, right? We're teaching people about positive caretaker interactions. We're teaching people about concepts like low-stress handling, a wonderful work that um, Dr. Marty Becker and his team does. We're introducing this into Amish kennels, which is mind-blowing, and they're excited to do it, right? Mm. Does it mean everybody is perfect and everyone's doing this? Absolutely not. But there is a slow and steady groundswell to re-envision what a commercial breeder's obligations to dogs happens to be, and it's manifesting in the way breeders design their kennels, at least the ones we work with, how they interact with their dogs, what they offer them, the fact that they are retiring them very early and working with us to set them up so that they are prepared to go into homes and do well in homes, so they are preparing very early on in terms of which dogs they select um, to even have in their kennels um, and which dogs they are working with intensively. Some dogs have different needs versus others. So that life in the kennel is short-term life because their ultimate goal is to get them into good homes, rehome them humanely, end their breeding careers fairly early, put them in wonderful homes that they're a good match for, and just like any other responsible breeder, if that match doesn't work out, whether they are, have sold that dog to a store, they sold it directly um, to a person, if, they, if someone is not happy with their dog, they want their dogs back, right? And they've learned that different mentality of you've got an obligation to the dog you chose to breed for its life. And that's a fantastic thing. And the saddest part is people's unwillingness to be a little bit more open-minded prevents them from seeing that these things are happening, and that level of good is happening at scale. 
Well, you're absolutely right about that. And there's more to this conversation uh, that needs to take place. But we need to take another break. We're speaking this morning with Dr. Candace Crony from Purdue University. And Dr. Crony will be back right here in a minute after we take a break on 1320 WILS. Hey, got some ideas for a show? Questions? Maybe suggestions? Just email us, mmpets at 1320wils.com. Or message us on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash MMPets. Whoever said the dogs won't chase parked cars never met Rick Proust and Lee Cohen. They're back on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show, 1320 WILS. We're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And we've been speaking this morning with Dr. Candace Crony. And Rick, once again, you've got uh, pertinent questions. So in my mind, I was thinking this morning of relating the dog business, if you will, to just simple a math equation, almost like algebra or chemistry, that oftentimes we find that in order to solve the actual problem, in order to come up with X, we need to know all the ingredients that go into that equation, whether it's chemistry or whether it's math. If you don't have all the numbers, it doesn't work anyhow. And what I mean by that is, to me, I think the public needs to appreciate or understand what the overall demand is for puppies that people want to have sitting next to them from not just here in Michigan, but in California, in Texas, and in uh, West Virginia, wherever. And, you know, can you share with us and, and give us some perspective on what it looks like? What is the complexion of that? So the person that's trying to judge whether or not a commercial breeding facility is even necessary, if they could you give us some perspective to that? Yeah. What you've touched on is really important. It's this idea that we have this very intense love for dogs, and the pandemic has taught us exactly how many people would love to have dogs in their homes. We really need to work on educating members of the public on what it takes to make a good choice and be really prepared so that you keep dogs in their homes forever if possible, even though sometimes um, people's circumstances can change. But one of the things that we know is that demand for dogs in the United States is incredibly high. It's growing. Um, Depending on what year you're in or whose models you look at, the numbers that are um, projected that are needed are somewhere around the $8 million, not dollars, the $8 million um, dog mark, right? Um, The numbers might be slightly lower today. Um, Nonetheless, one of the things that that we know is when you do the models, the numbers of dogs that come through shelters, rescues, and sort of these these really small-scale breeders, the kind many people um, will know about, the ones who just have a couple of litters here or there, what people might refer to as hobby breeders, those can't meet the demand for dogs. It really is a number scale, right? Um, And so the question then becomes, how do, you set, how do you defend raising dogs at scale, which is really what commercial breeders do? And this is why, as part of the work we do, we're not trying to get into the politics of where dogs should come from and what's better um, in terms of the ethics of where you get dogs. There's just places to get dogs all over, right? If you think a wonderful place and the right place to get a dog is a shelter or rescue, that's fantastic. You should have that source. 
problem is when we run into this issue that the supply is not matching the demand, and when there are people who have specific needs, for whatever reason, for a certain type of dog um, that they cannot find in a shelter or that are very difficult to find in shelters, then where do you get those dogs, right? So yeah. you can you either think about importing them. That brings certain risks, including potentially importing of um, uh, foreign animal diseases. You can move dogs around the country from shelters or rescues, which that does, in fact, happen. But again, we come back to the numbers game, right? It still doesn't work out that we have enough dogs to meet demand. And many people can't hear that because they see dogs in in shelters and their hearts break because so many of those dogs are being euthanized. And I'm right there with them. I I hate that that happens, right? That said, there's a fallacy that many people run with that if dogs only came from those sources, there wouldn't be any problem. We know that's not the case because, again, there are people who have certain needs or certain wants for dogs, and if they cannot find them in a shelter or rescue, they are going to find them. So the question is, where are they going to find them so that the numbers games work? And this is where the commercial breeder who's operating not even just in compliance with the law, which is great, but the ones who are voluntarily doing far more and not getting any credit for it to ensure that their practices are more in line with what you would think of as a smaller-scale responsible breeder can help to meet that demand and not push us into directions that are problematic, where because they are being pushed out of business, the market is shifting to people getting dogs online. Well, those online dogs, those online markets, they're coming from somewhere. How are they being bred? Under what conditions? Who's overseeing that, right? And we sure don't want people who are kicked off at true puppy mills, as I've described them before, now, without knowing, actually supporting those markets that are presented very easily online um, as good sources of dogs, right? Because there's no vetting, and it's very difficult to vet where the dogs that are represented online are coming from unless that breeder is being super transparent and someone is in a capacity to go and actually look for themselves, right? So that's tough. The other thing that's happening is there are people who are breeding dogs in their backyards even more and more. Um, And in fact, that demand for dogs that you saw during the pandemic, which was a really eye-opening exercise for what the United States potentially is in for if we get rid of commercial breeders altogether, creates risk on a number of levels. Number one, we don't know what the backyard breeders are doing. Some are doing a very good job. I, I do want to put that out there. But we know there are others who they're just doing what they think is right. They're putting dogs together. They're not genetically screening them. They're not necessarily educated about what they're doing. And so people are not focused enough on when you overregulate or at least try to intensively focus on only one type of breeder what you do because of the numbers game to drive the market to other people who will help meet that demand in their place, right? And yeah. if those folks have potentially similar, the same, or even worse problems with their practices, and even worse than that, people don't know about them, can't find them, can't regulate them, or they don't even qualify for regulation, then all you've done is dismantle the market because what you have said is, the big breeders need to go out of business because they're uniformly bad. And I, I have told you that is incorrect. And it's a shame that more people won't open their minds to see the change 
that has happened voluntarily within that group of breeders to this idea that if you have fewer dogs at your location, but you're doing an equally poor job of it, that's okay. That's just dispersing poor welfare and making it much more difficult to address. That's a problem. We shouldn't be setting ourselves up for that problem. And we're already on that path. Let me, um, let me ask, um, commonly, uh, municipalities and states uh, will pass laws that will essentially outlaw a pet store, something that I'm familiar with, right? A pet store from actually selling puppies so that they get to the idea of not having commercial breeding kennels, right? Or they would define it as puppy mills. Can you comment on that? And maybe maybe there's a better approach or a better avenue? And if so, could you kind of comment on what would be a better way of putting pressure on an industry such that there are less dogs that are put into difficult situations? Yeah. So I'm going to try and and do my level best to not inappropriately insert myself into something that has become a political hot-button issue. Sure. Here's, Here's what the science tells me. Um, and this is from going on nine years now of doing this research. Doctor, we've only got about 30 yeah. seconds. Well, if I... we want to find real solutions for dogs, we have to be more open-minded about where we get them and who can lead in transforming their welfare. We're not doing that right now. We're looking at one solution to solve a problem and we've already discussed what the issues are that are emerging as a result of that one solution. We have to do better than that. We have to seriously consider alternatives. That includes teaching the large-scale breeders much more about animal welfare and helping them every single day to continuously improve this. Well, it's a, it sounds like you are working on the problem, and that's a positive thing. And, Rick, I'll say to you, you guys focus on education more than any pet store I've ever seen. So bottom line is, between the two of you, that's a good start, but it sounds like more is necessary. Uh, Dr. Crony, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. As always, we'll just say goodbye here, and we'll have you on again soon. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Our pleasure as well. We've been speaking with Dr. Candice Crony uh, from Purdue University Vet School. She is the perfect mixture of someone who has a passion for the animals, but also doesn't ignore the science. We are through for today. So on behalf of our producer, Bruce Warner and Rick Bruce, my co-host in the studio, this is Lee Cohen. We'll talk next weekend on the Mid-Michigan Pet Expert Talk Show. 